Um, assignment due today is the article review. So a couple of you turned that in online. A couple, one or two people gave it to me already this morning. Uh, you can turn it in between class and lab if you like. If you're turning in a paper copy, if not, you have until 6 o'clock tomorrow to submit it to the article review dropbox on D2L. Homework three, which I gave out earlier in the week, is due next Friday. That's the one with just five questions, so double weighted, and it only covers the section on the planets that we're doing right now. So that's due next week, and then coming up after that, we'll have the quiz on uh, chapters four through eight and nine, right after that, and then the second exam scheduled for October the second, covering chapter three, which we just finished last time. Chapters 4 through 8, which we're working on right now, and then chapter 9 on the sun. So, any questions? Questions? Nope. All right. Picture of the day for today. Well, it's a night at the drive-in. Um, old drive-in theater there. And if you can see the image on the screen, that's actually an image of the International Space Station. Don't know how you can see that there. I'm not sure whether... The, I'm. I'm guessing that was probably photoshopped in. I don't really know too many movies that have images of the International Space Station like that on them. Maybe. There may be one but that they were showing at the drive-in, but that's not what, not what I expect typically to see there. So that, was pro that may have been added in later just for effect. But you have the image there. So multiple images that were put together. You had one brief image quickly taken here. But what you're really looking at for us astronomically is looking at the stars back here. And one thing that you notice is that the stars don't look like they normally do. They're not little points of light. They're actually streaks. Now, nothing was moving. The camera was being held still. So what was really moving was us. The Earth is turning, right? So the Earth is turning because we don't feel us moving and that the motion is all relative. It actually looks like the stars are moving. So you'd see the stars rising in the east and coming down and setting in the west. We caught a little bit of that motion while the camera was open. So if you can do this, I mean, this is something you can do relatively easily if you've got a very dark sky. So if you're not in the middle of the city someplace where there's lots of lights around, but if you've got a relatively dark sky and you can take a camera out, point it at the sky, and just leave the shutter open for 10, 15 minutes, don't need to do it for hours, you can actually get an image of, no. ignore the drive-in portion here, but you can actually get an image of the uh, motion and actually see the motion of the Earth with just a simple, just a simple camera. So you see all of those little arcs. They're all just little parts of the, of the great circles that the stars would make in the sky. So if you could leave this on longer and longer, that would just continue on. And eventually, if you could leave it open for 24 hours, or 23 hours and 56 minutes, right? It would come right back and that star would come and make a complete circle. Tough to get one with 24 hours worth or 23 hours and 56 minutes worth because the sun comes up at some point and kind of washes things out. There have been some that have been done. If you go far enough north, you can have nights, you know, in the very northern tip of Alaska, you can have times where the sun never rises. So you actually have ways that you could technically get an image of the complete circles in that case. The other thing that you notice on them, you might notice on the stars, is that they're not all the same. They're all different colors. And that's just telling you about the temperatures of the stars. Lots of blue stars here, the hotter stars. Uh, you'll see a few fainter reddish ones. Red is harder to pick up in this, but there's a few that have a reddish tinge. Bless you. A few that have a reddish tinge, or a yellowish tinge, or a whitish tinge. And it's really telling you about the temperatures. So just by glancing at that, you can tell that there is, like over here, there's a relatively hotter star with a little bit of a bluish tinge. And this one under it, two down here, has a little bit of a red tinge. At least looking at it on the screen here, when it gets projected, you, lose, you seem to lose a lot of that, of that red. Now you can't get the exact temperatures. That takes more instrumentation, more measurements. But you can get an idea of what the temperature is like of those stars, which ones are hotter and which ones are cooler there. So, questions? It would be hard if you had the full moon there. The full moon would really uh, blot out, would, would overexpose your camera. So it would get a lot of stray light coming into your camera and 
you'd wash out the image very quickly. Same reason you couldn't really take the image like this. This is not one image. You couldn't take it at the drive-in while the drive-in was going. That would have, if this was an image, this would have overwhelmed and brightened the whole sky there and you wouldn't see anything. So yeah, a full moon, even a quarter moon would be, make it very difficult to be able to get a good image like this. You need a really dark sky without the moon or at least with not pointing in the direction of the moon. So if the moon's over here and you're taking your picture over here, won't be so bad. If you're trying to get too close to the moon, the brightness of the moon will overwhelm your image. Anything else? Already? Well, we'll go back to the... Yeah. Um, I didn't check. I didn't check exactly which one. I know it was very close to full. Probably was. Was it last night? The 19th. Okay, I didn't check the exact date. So harvest moon was the 19th. Okay. I know it was coming up. I know I've been looking at it the last couple of days, and it's nice, nice and bright there. But gives you an idea of how difficult it really is. If you just look at the moon to tell, you can't really tell when it's full moon or a day or so before or a day or so after. It looks almost the same. You really can't tell the difference. You should, as you get a couple days, because it only takes seven days to go from full moon to third quarter. So when you're right at full moon, you're kind of at that peak and it's hard to tell one way or the other. But once you get two days past it, you'll start to see a little bit of it starting to, to fade. Yes, ma'am. Um, it's harvest moon at the start. Uh, it's the full moon close to the harvest. I think what the idea was is that it was the harvest moon because it gave farmers extra time. You know, the sun is setting, but yeah, you've got this full moon. You've still got some light to work. But you know, back in the days before, you could put, you know, big electric lighting out or whatever to to run run equipment. You had some extra light that was relatively bright that could help you push your harvest time a little bit later. That was my understanding of it at least. Okay. And it made sense to me, so I haven't. <laughs> Alrighty, well, let's go look at the formation of the solar system here then. And showed you this one last time. There's our solar system as it was, you know, five billion years ago, a little over five billion years ago. Big cloud of gas and dust. A uh, couple of light years across probably. So very, very large. And probably actually part of a bigger cloud that would have formed more than just a single star. It's not typically one star that forms at a time. It's usually they form in, in groups. So something, for whatever reason, caused it to collapse. To start collapsing. The cloud of gas is normally going to be stay there and be stable. Some kind of impulse had to happen. Something had to happen to that cloud to get it starting to collapse. Like supernova explosion is really one of our best thoughts right now. You could have things like clouds colliding. That would also do it. But because of some of the asteroids that we study and their compositions, we find certain elements there that would only have been formed in a supernova explosion. And they have relatively short lives. They don't live very long. So they formed long enough to be trapped into these rocks and for us to be able to measure them, their, their remnants at least today. But they would have had to form within several hundred thousand years of a supernova or they'd all be gone. So certain elements that we see sort of lead to the suggestion that a massive supernova explosion nearby is what actually triggered the formation of the solar system. So impacting on one side of the cloud, compressing it a little bit. Once you start compressing it, then gravity kicks in. So once you get it started compressing, gravity kicks in. You've got a core at the center with more mass. Well, it's got stronger gravity. It starts pulling in more material. And then the collapse begins. So it will collapse down into a disk-like formation. The sun here at the center just beginning to form would be a protostar at the time, not even a real star yet but a much big, bigger concentration of material. And it starts spinning. It's been, it was spinning here. Might have spun, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years or more to spin around once. So it's spinning very, very slowly. But there was some little bit of spin to the cloud. When it collapses, that spin gets magnified. So you collapse things down, they start to spin faster and faster. 
Uh, the ice skater is the typical example, right? Ice skater spinning, puts their arms out. They're spinning slowly. They pull their arms into them, and they all of a sudden start spinning faster and faster. They're not doing anything else. It's simply a matter of physics that your spin, when you bring things in closer, the spin is going to has to and must go fa be faster and faster. So the closer you can get things into you, the faster you'll be able to spin. So it magnifies that little bit of spin into a much faster spin, which is what we see today in the rotation of the sun. You know, takes only about a month for the sun to spin once. So very fast compared to what this cloud would have been moving before. And the rotation of the planets, all the planets moving around the sun, is all the remnant of that very early rotation, very slow rotation of this cloud. So that was where we were last time. And then we look a little bit more as to what we think might have happened over time. So we started here. Here's that nebula that started collapsing. You're getting a star beginning to form at the center. Hotter regions there, much closer to the star as it forms. And cooler regions further out. So what that means is that you have hotter regions close to the star and cooler regions further away. Makes sense, right? You're close to a star. If you're close to the star, it's going to be hotter. If you're further away from the star, it's not going to be quite as hot. So what are you going to form? Well, we would expect that little bits that would form would be rocky metal materials if you're real close to that star. Materials that are capable of forming and remaining stable at high temperatures, you know, temperatures of hundreds of degrees. Rocks will hold up to, to those kind of temperatures. You know, metallic materials will hold up to those. So that would be the materials that we would expect to form out of this nebula very close to the sun. We wouldn't expect icy material, right? If icy material starts to form, it's too hot, it's not going to, the material isn't going to be able to stick together. The icy material won't be able to stick together very close to the sun. As you get further and further away, the temperature cools off, and now icy materials are able to condense into larger chunks. So it was a, ti a time-consuming process. It takes you know, millions of years to go from beginning to form this cloud to actually forming the, what we call the planetesimals. I see a typo in there in their, in their text. It should be pl not planetesimals. There should be an L in there. Planetesimals. Little tiny bits of planet. So you form those. You form little bits of the planet first. Rockier ones close to the sun. Icier ones further away. And that explains what we see in terms of the planets within our solar system. Remember, we looked last time at the two different types of planets, the terrestrials and the Jovians. Terrestrial planets were all rocky, and they're all close to the sun. Jovian planets were icy and gaseous, and they were all further away from the sun. So it works very well as an explanation for our solar system. There may be more we still have to understand on that. Other solar systems that we are now been able to discover and detect in the last 15, 20 years aren't all like ours. We find solar systems where there are planets the size of Jupiter orbiting within the orbit of Mercury. Well, if it's a planet a lot, if it's a planet a lot like Jupiter, you know, gaseous, a lot of ices, how is it orbiting? How is it forming that close to the star? Good question. Yeah. That's one of the things is that perhaps these planets come in, are formed further out, and they make their way in through different interactions. But we see a lot of them. It's not just like there's the one or two odd cases. So it's time to look more and more like we're the oddball. You know, why didn't it happen here? Why didn't Jupiter get kicked in closer in orbit? You know, within the orbit. Well, if that would have good thing it didn't, right? Because if Jupiter had gotten in that close, we wouldn't be here. That would have completely disrupted the other orbits. But you really couldn't form an icy body that close to the star. I mean, there's just no way if you have that high of a temperature. But something that we didn't know, you know, 25 years ago, how many other planets did we know about other than our solar system? There was maybe a handful that we suspected. Now we have, what was the last count? It's pushing like eight or 900 now. So there's a lot of planets that we now know about outside of our solar system that have begun to be detected. And probably many millions and billions more that we cannot detect. But this is sort of our, what I call the condensation theory as how the material condensed. You'd have dust grains cooling the cloud and you'd have those little 
pieces, little tiny dust grains that would still start to collect. They'd give some sort of material for, for which other materials to condense on. So you'd have a little grain there and that grain would start to grow and over time would get bigger and bigger. You'd form lots of these. So it wasn't just one that formed and then continually got bigger until it formed planets. It was a whole bunch of them and then they'd collide, smash together. Sometimes they'd tear each other apart. Sometimes they'd stick together and get bigger. Over time they slowly grew and you'd clean out a lot of them and bigger ones would stick together and stick together. Eventually you got the eight largest that were able to clear pretty much everything else out in their area and those are the eight planets that we know today. There are still some remnants of this left. The asteroid belt in between Mars and Jupiter and the Kuiper belt out beyond Neptune are actually kind of remnants of what we saw, probably saw from early, early on in the solar system's formation. Here's an example of a star. This is the star Beta Pictoris. And this was one of the earliest examples that we found of perhaps a planetary system forming. Um, this is an artist's conception here. Here is actually the solar system, our solar system to scale. Um, the bluish in, inner part would be the orbit of Neptune. Pluto's orbit is the kind of tilted one. So, but looking outside of that orbit, we see that around this star, there's material out there. We can see it out in the visible part of the spectrum, out in the infrared. We can see the heat that's being generated by this dust as, it's out, as it is around this star system. So this might be one that is in the process of forming planets right now. The secondary picture is more of an artist's conception. There's the star forming and the disk of material around it. We don't have the technology to be able to get this kind of image, a real image of it. We wouldn't, cannot see that kind of detail. We can see this, that there's a hint that yeah, there might be a planetary system forming around there. We don't know for sure. But we now know of many, many objects where there are really planets orbiting, where we can detect other planets from things many times the size of Jupiter down to planets the size of the Earth or even smaller that we have been able to detect orbiting around other stars. Well, there's a couple different ways to detect it. Let me see if that's my, oh, nope, let me jump ahead then. Let me jump ahead and I'll go back to that other one since you asked the question there. There's a couple different ways. That's one way to detect them is if they pass right in front of the star. So that would be if you were looking at the star. Okay, we cannot magnify a star close to that kind of size except for the sun. But there'd be a star there. If you have the planet's orbit coming so that it goes right in front of the star, it's going to block out a little bit of the light. Not much, but a little tiny bit of the light. So that star is going to be, while that planet is passing in front of it, it's going to get a little bit fainter. And then as it keeps going through, and then it will come off and the star will get a little bit brighter again. So then the, now you can't see that planet. You can't see the star. I mean you can see the star, but you can't see the planet casting in front of the star. You can only see its effect. And what it would be is if you were measuring the brightness of that star, you'd measure its brightness, it would be pretty constant. And all of a sudden it would dip when the planet passed in front of it and do it again. One time later it passed in front of it. If it takes it a month to go around, a month later we get the same dip and over and over again and repeat it. That's one way that we can detect planets around other stars and in fact a lot of them have been detected this way. The other thing that we can do is look at their gravitational effects. So the top one there is looking at the velocity of the star. It's looking at the velocity of the star and what it means is that this star in, Pe in the constellation of Pegasus is sometimes has a positive velocity, sometimes it has a negative velocity. So sometimes it's moving towards us, sometimes it's moving away from us. Not very fast, but a little bit. And that would be, a good explanation for that would be that there is another object there pulling on it. And if they're orbiting each other, sometimes in its orbit that star is going to be moving towards us. Sometimes as it orbits, it's going to be moving away. So if you saw that star and it's orbiting around, instead of just sitting there, if there's something else, sometimes that star is on a little orbit and sometimes it's coming towards us. 
You know, we're down here someplace. Sometimes it's going away. We can measure that through the Doppler shift. So we can measure the Doppler shift of its spectral lines and find out here it's moving towards us, here it's moving away. We can take that information and work backwards to find out in the first case that there must be a planet orbiting that star to account for the motions that we see. Not always that simple. The bottom one is another example. That's a star in the constellation of Andromeda. Doesn't look near as simple to understand as the other one. And you can imagine that if instead of there being just one planet, what if there were three? So what if you had one planet in here orbiting around, one in here, and one in here? Well, now that star has a very odd orbit. Sometimes it's getting pulled this way by one planet. Sometimes it's getting all the planets are on the same side pulling it together. Right? So it's going to be going faster in that direction. Sometimes all the planets are opposite each other and all their motions cancel out and you get almost nothing. So you get a much stranger pattern when you're looking at multiple planets. So it has a similar velocity. It, goes, it gets bigger and smaller, but it has very odd, a very odd pattern to it depending on the exact positioning. Whether the planets are all lined up, they're all on one side of the star, they're all tugging it in the same direction. Now, astronomers can take this kind of information, look at this, and put this into a computer and then work back what positions of the planets would be necessary, what orbits, what, times, what type of period, what type of distance is needed in order to reproduce what we actually see. So we can use, those are just a couple of ways that we can use to try to detect planets. And as I said, we're pushing about 900 planets outside the solar system that are now known. So, you know, 25 years ago that might have been one or two that were suspected. Now it's been growing and we find, we find more, you know, a few more every month come up as they work through these two, either looking at the light curves or looking at the velocity measurements. So, good. I'm going to jump back. Now I'm going to jump back one, finish up the temperatures, but I wanted to get that while we were talking about that question. Um, this really is what I was talking about before in terms of the temperatures. What type of material a planet is going to be formed of primarily depends on where it, where it is, where it forms in the solar nebula, where it formed in that early solar system. The blue curve here would be the temperature. So how hot was it at various distances? So if you get in close to the Earth, it was pushing 1,000 degrees, 1,000 Kelvin. In towards Mercury and Venus, it would have been even hotter. So things like water ice wouldn't condense. So we have essentially no water on the Earth. What? We have lots of water, right? Not really. If you look at it as a percentage, Yes, two-thirds two or three-quarters of the Earth's surface is covered by water, but it's only this little tiny paper-thin layer. Yes, I know it goes down miles deep, but how many thousands of miles deep is the Earth? So if you actually figure out how much water there is on the Earth, it's not a whole lot compared to how much iron there is on the Earth. You know, you've got a whole gigantic iron core that would swamp the oceans many times over. So really, there is, there is water. Yes, there's some, but not much. Not, in fact, tiny amounts compared to when we look at the outer planets. You know, Jupiter, Jupiter has one moon, Europa, which has more water than the entire Earth. Its, its moon has more water than the entire Earth does. That moon is about the size of, that moon is about the size of our moon. Actually, a little bit, small, little, bit, little bit smaller. But it's got more water than the entire Earth does. So we think of ourselves as a watery planet, but if you scrape off those outer layers of the Earth, which are very small compared to the whole thing, you know, smaller than, if we go here, if this were the Earth, you know, smaller than just the very little outest outer edges. That's where all the water is. If you dig down deeper, if you go down, you know, 50 miles under the Earth's surface, you're still barely scratching the surface of the Earth, but there's no water. You're not going to find any water the rest of the way down. So things like water and ammonia that form that make up a big chunk of some of the outer planets are very rare on the inner ones. And in fact, the Earth has some water. Mars has water, frozen water, no liquid water left. Mercury and Venus have very little to no water. So very little water as you form further in. So really what this is telling you is that the temperature is going to say what, where, where you formed. Where you formed tells you what you're going to end up being made up of. And when we look at the planets, 
the planets that form close to the sun are primarily rocky, primarily metal. So a lot of metallic materials. Uh, Mercury is actually more metal even than rock. It's very large iron core which goes out most of the way towards its surface and then a rocky layer on the top. Venus is similar to the Earth. Mars is getting more and more rocky and then when you get further out, when you get out to the outer solar system, things turn into all ices. That doesn't mean you don't have any rocks, rocky materials making up the outer planets, but they're a much smaller percentage because all of this other stuff could now condense out too and there was a lot more water and ammonia and things like that in the early solar system than, than there was rocks, rocky materials. Okay, and we did that one. So, as I said, I'm skimming through these, so that was the end of chapter four. And we'll go through, we'll get into, we'll get through chapter five and into chapter six. Chapter five, I kind of really skimmed through. I only picked a couple of topics to talk about for the Earth and the Moon. So I really want to go through more on the other, a little bit more on the other planets. But there is an image from one of the Apollo missions. Would have been one of the last, let's see, 11, 12, 14, 15, 16, one of, the la- one of the last three or four where they actually had the rovers. It was the last couple that actually had the rovers that allowed them to travel around the moon. Yeah, they could walk, but it's a lot easier. If you can drive someplace, you can get there a lot faster, so you can travel a further distance away from your lander and be able to explore and get samples from further areas. So. That was used for the last, and I can't remember if it was the last three or the last four of the Apollo missions. I think it might have just been the last three, but I, I, could, I, could be, I could be wrong on that. But that was used to be able to travel around and be able to travel a few kilometers away from your landing site, whereas the first couple, Apollo 11, Apollo 12, were constrained to stay within a reasonable walking distance of, of, where, they, of where they landed. Now, a couple things that I wanted to talk about on these. One was the tides. So I like to go through that, so I want to show you a little bit about the tides. Tides are caused by a combination of the moon and the sun. Uh, but primarily, the moon is the largest uh, contributor to the tides. And what it does is that when you look at, the earth, look at the moon and you think about its gravitational force on the Earth. If you remember Newton's law of gravity, was depended on some constant, depended on the mass of one object, depended on the mass of the other object, that's the mass of the Earth, the mass of the Moon, and it depends on the distance between them. Now typically most astronomical objects are so far away that you can consider that distance to be from the center of the Moon to the center of the Earth and it's all the same. So when you're talking about the sun and some of the planets or two stars, well that works very well. When you get objects that are close enough together though, you can actually get a force, you can actually calculate how how hard the moon is pulling on the near side of the earth. Right, that's a little bit closer to the moon than the far side. Not much, but one earth diameter. It's a little bit closer. Well if it's a little bit closer, the gravitational force is going to be a little bit more. Now, for the Earth itself, that doesn't make a big difference, right? You've got this big solid ball of rock and you pull on one side a little bit harder than the other and as long as it has enough structural integrity, right? If it was really weak, you'd rip it apart. But as long as it has enough structural integrity, you're not going to do too much to the Earth. But water, on the other hand, flows very easily. So when you pull on that water a little bit more, it gets pulled towards the moon a little bit and causes the tides to occur. So you're going to get a greater force here than you are on the far side. So you're actually pulling some of the water towards the moon and causing higher tides here. On the other side of the earth, you think you get a low tide, right? No, you get a high tide again. You get a high tide here and you get a high tide here. Couple ways to think about it, but one of the easiest ways is that you're pulling the water away from the earth here, right, on this side. On this side the force is greater on the center of the earth 
than it is on the water. So the Earth is getting pulled a tiny bit and the water is getting left behind in its orbit. So you'll actually get a high tide here and about 12 hours later you get another high tide and in between those you'll get the two low tides. So high tides are pulling straight towards the moon or directly away, going directly away, and low tides are in between, in between those two. So it's a matter of the gravitational force of the moon. Did I do the sun for this class? What did I give you for the other one? Nope, I did not do the sun. Let me mention the sun as well. The sun does the same thing. The sun has a stronger gravity, but it's a lot further away. So it turns out that the force of the sun, the, the tidal force of the sun, is actually less than that of the moon, about a half to a third of that of the moon. But it does mean that at certain times, the sun and the moon will line up. Right? If you have a full moon or a new moon, if you have, let's do a new moon. Here's the Earth. New moon, you'd have the moon, and you'd have the sun way out here. The moon is pulling and creating tides. The sun is pulling and creating tides. If they're lined up like that, they're both pulling in the same direction. So it's going to magnify the amount of the tide. Because the, the force with the water being pulled by the moon, it's also being pulled by the sun. They add together if they're pulling in the same direction like that. And you'll get higher tides. And we actually call these spring tides. They're unusually high tide. So if you get a high tide near the full near the full moon, right now, right, right about now, a day or so ago, you would have had a spring tide. You would have had unusually high tide if you were by the ocean these last couple of days. You also get that, that was new moon, you get the same effect if it's full moon. Sun's still out here. Sun's pulling this way. Moon is pulling this way, but again, we're still stretching the Earth, stretching the water out in that sort of oblong shape. They're still going to add together. So either one of these is going to give you what we call the spring tides. So you'll get a higher tide than normal if you go to the beach near new moon. Near full moon, you're going to get a higher tide than normal. The tide will come in further than it, than it otherwise would. And you'll also get unusually low tides. When it's low tide, this is the high tide. Six hours later, when you're getting a low tide, the low tide is going to be unusually low. The water will recede out even further than normal. Is there, is there, are the boats, the boats, the boats have the same relatively strength in tides, or are they a little bit different? They're about the, they're, they'd be about the same. The effect would be the same. It would really depend on whether, how far away everything is. You know, sometimes the moon is a little closer to the Earth or further away, but there's really no difference between, between these two. The other thing that you can get is if you line things up at a right angle. So there's the Earth, there's the first quarter moon, and here's the Sun. Now the Sun is trying to pull a high tide here and make a low tide here, but the Moon is trying to make a high tide where the Sun's making a low tide and a low tide where the Sun, so they're fighting each other. That's going to give you what we call a NEAP, N-E-A-P, tide. You still get a high tide because the moon is the moon stronger, the moon wins. Not because it's more massive, but because it's closer. So you'll still get a high tide, but at first quarter moon or third quarter, you're going to get a much lower high tide than normal. So you'll get the high tide, but it won't come in as high as it did at other phases, or certainly not near as high as it does during a new or full moon. So you see those are sort of the extremes in it, a spring tide or a neap tide. That can, that can occur. And some of you probably read about that if you did the Titanic article, which a lot of people like to do the first time. Um, it actually talks about the unusual tides that occurred during that, during that time, before, little, like the couple months before the Titanic, month, three months before the Titanic, was, the Titanic sunk. So it actually relates a little bit to this. All right. So what is that doing to us? Well, the Earth is still rotating. So what happens is the Moon pulls the water out towards the Moon, but the Earth is rotating very quickly, much faster than the Moon is moving. Moon takes 27 days to go around the Earth once. The Earth takes 
one day to spin on its axis. So it spins very quickly and it pulls the water along with it. So that bulge does not point directly at the moon. It points a little bit off. And that means that the moon is pulling this. So the moon is actually pulling not straight on, but it's pulling backwards. So if I have something spinning like this and I pull backwards on it, it's going to slow down a little bit, but it's going to slow down. The earth is slowing down. Not a lot, but it is slowing down, you know, seconds per decade, you know, a second per decade, a couple seconds. It is slowing down a very small amount. Eventually, it will slow down to the point, eventually as in billions of years from now, eventually it will slow down to the point where the moon and the earth are locked together. That the earth takes however long to rotate around once, the moon orbits around with exactly the same period. So that you won't have this offset anymore. Eventually the, moon, the earth would then rotate. If you left the moon where it is at 27 days, the earth would take 27 days to spin around once. So eventually they would line up and then there would be no further changes. Except that, now only half the earth would get to see the moon. The same side of the earth would always be pointing towards the moon. Just like the same side of the moon always points towards the earth. So if you go, you go live on the moon, go decide to live on the moon and you live on the near side, you see the earth all the time. It's always there. If you live on the far side, you never see the earth. The earth never rises or sets as seen from the moon. It's always going to be in the same position. The earth would eventually get to that same point. But again, we're talking very slow changes and that will take many billion, billions of years for that to actually occur. But at some point, you'll be a location on the earth where you can see the moon and there'd be the other side of the earth where you never see the moon at all. Won't be visible. But nothing that's going to happen in our lifetimes. Now we're talking a few seconds of change in the Earth, fraction of seconds of change in the, in the Earth's rotation yearly. It's very, very small. All right, I want to look a little bit at the moon here. So here's an image of the moon, and hopefully you've gotten to see the nice full moon uh, these last couple days. When we look at the moon, we see a couple of different areas. Uh, when you look at the near side, you see the maria uh, for seas. So Looks like a sea there when you're looking at it. Looks like a nice, flat, smooth, dark area. So you can imagine it being like a giant lake or ocean on the moon. It's nothing like that. The moon is much, much drier than, drier than that. And in fact, there's never been evidence of liquid water on the surface of the moon at all. What they are is actually great lava flows. So at some point in the distant past on the moon, past on the moon lava was able to flow and filled up gigantic impact basins meaning that there was a very large impact that smashed into this, made a gigantic crater, and at some point later, molten material from the, from the interior of the moon was able to come out and filled in all those low-lying low areas. You see some little bits and pieces that may be sticking up above here. You see a crater up here that's completely flooded in the middle. Another one here, completely flooded. You also see some material that formed more recently. If you look at a crater like this one, looks nice and sharp compared to some of these others that are getting washed out. That's a crater that occurred after all of the volcanic activity on the moon. So the maria that we see are actually volcanic flows. So not oceans as might have been thought at one point, but actually lava flows that have covered the Earth's surface. We don't see them on the other side of the moon. Very few, very little evidence of maria like we see on the near side on the far side of the moon. Yeah. More, cra more craters on the far side of the moon, away from the Earth. Because the one the, at one point the, the moon would have been completely cratered. It's the near side of the moon, possibly had a weaker crust, and was better able to be flooded and wiped out those craters. Earth has gotten hit by just as many, if not more, meteors as the moon. Where are all our craters? They're gone, right? We've got, we've got volcanic, volcanic activity. We've got lava flows that wipe it out. We've got plate tectonics. We've also got those oceans, which may be thin, but you know, you smash a 100-meter smash a uh, meteor into the ocean. You don't see a scar, right? It doesn't make a scar. So they don't last very long. You've got weathering effects. You don't have weathering effects on the moon. 
So this, everything in the solar system has been hit about the same. What we see in terms of craters really tells us how old that surface is, how long it's been since it's been changed. So this is just an example showing you how a meteor might make a crater. Uh, the meteoroid comes in at a very high velocity. Nothing to slow it down on the moon at all. Right? We've got an atmosphere that kind of buffers us from some of the littlest ones anyway. But it comes in and it essentially explodes, crashes into there, uh, tears apart, pulverizes the crust here, and leaves the crater behind, crater being about 10 times the size of the meteor that hit it. So if this was you know, 10 meters across, you form a 100 meter crater. If it was a mile across, you form a 10 mile crater. So it doesn't take a very big object because of the velocities with which these are impacting. Very high. It doesn't take a lot of the large object to create a very good sized crater. You see that explosion. Material is ejected out. Can we see that in any of the ones on the previous slide very well? A little bit down there perhaps. Maybe in this one you can see. If you see this one which is a relatively young crater. Maybe only a billion years old. Moon has not changed, so young for the moon is much different than young on the Earth. But you can almost see rays coming out of it. Those rays would be from that impact. The impact smashes it and throws material out, and it comes back down and forms those rays. They'll eventually disappear over time. Little other little meteorites hit it. On Earth, the weathering effects will wipe it out really quick, but it will form with any of these large, large meteorites. So form something that's about 10 times the size of the object that hits it and maybe twice as deep. So again, it doesn't take a very large object to form a very big crater. And here's just kind of summarizing what I gave you there. Craters are about 10 times as wide and twice as deep. I've given you that. But that impact pulverizes that rock. That rock gets crushed down below there even to even more extent. How old are the craters? Well, we have a pretty good idea now that we've gotten some samples of them. So we've been able to go get samples, bring them back to the Earth, and actually measure the radioactive elements in them. And we can find out how long ago they formed. The vast majority of them occurred almost 4 billion years ago. Earth's changed a lot in 4 billion years. That's why we don't see them anymore. So any, meteor, any impacts that occurred on the Earth they're there. We still see some scars of the ones that have occurred recently. Uh, we looked at Meteor Crater in Arizona, right? relatively recent one. But most of the ones that formed a long time ago are still there. The moon has the advantage in terms of keeping craters. It's got no atmosphere. It has no weathering, right? no wind, no rain to wash out those craters, which will slowly destroy them on Earth. Question? Yeah. Is that what's called the heavy bombardment? The heavy bombardment period would have been early. It would have been very early on, yes. So very early on, that first, the first billion or so years as the solar system was forming. And if you recall from our model of the solar system, what was happening at the time? You had a planet, but you still had all these other bits and pieces around it. Well, they're still colliding in there. So there were a lot more collisions now then than there are now. But most of those lunar craters are pushing, you know, four billion years old. There's been some since then. You know, Earth has been hit, hit, right? We got hit 65 million years ago. We wiped out the dinosaurs. We've been hit by smaller things. You know, within the within the last year, right? We had the one in Russia earlier this year that came in. So we've been hit, but much less. It's much rarer. You can imagine what it would have been like billions of years ago. We would have been getting hit. You know, for every one we get now, you'd be getting a hundred. A thousand, ten thousand. I mean, it would have been that much very early on in the in the history of the solar system. There was that much more material. It's mostly been cleared out now. Yeah. You know how much the size of the meteor, the meteor that exploded over over Russia in the early 1900s that caused all those trees to break up and break like toothpicks? <sighs> the one that exploded, yeah, the Tunguska. Any idea what the size of that one was that caused that? It could have been. I would say. I would say. Maybe, you know, half a kilometer, a kilometer or so in size. I think it was pretty good size because it would have wiped out a lot. I know when you put the destruction over there, it clears out a pretty good area. So it could have been something that was, you know, half a kilometer or so in size. 
Could have been a comet, could have been a meteor. They're still, they've still gone back and forth on, on that that I've seen as well. But something that, something that exploded in the Earth's atmosphere. Why would it explode in the Earth's atmosphere instead of hitting the ground? Why well, just the intensity, that, that heat that's generated as, the impact, as it's impacting into the atmosphere, it would. Now, if it's hitting the moon, that wouldn't happen. But when you've got the intensity of this thing streaming through the Earth's atmosphere and hitting it, you know, the Earth's atmosphere, which is nice and calm for us, becomes almost like solid for it as it's coming through at that high of speed and could tear it apart. So some of, the, some, of them, some of them do actually break apart. Depends on what they're made up of and what else is, and the atmosphere that it's going through. Ready. Well, let's finish up on formation of the Earth and Moon. How do we form the Earth and Moon system? A uh, number of theories to for how the Earth and the Moon formed. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go over one here, which is the current theory. But there are things that have been suggested in the past, like maybe they just formed together like that. Right? Just form. Instead of forming one planet, you form two. It's certainly a possibility. question is then, why didn't any of the other planets do that? Mercury has no moons. Venus has no moons. Mars has two little teeny tiny asteroids that it's captured as moons. So if, if it's that easy to form, like the planets forming around the sun, why didn't, that, why didn't it form around the other planets as well? Um, there's also thoughts that maybe the moon was captured then. So maybe it was something rarer. Maybe the moon was captured. It formed somewhere else in the solar system, came in, and the Earth just happened to capture it into an orbit. Possible, but very hard to capture something into a nice circular orbit like the moon is. It's in a pr not perfectly, but it's pretty circular. And it's very hard to capture it. Most likely, if something that big came close to the Earth, it gets either smashes into us, or it comes close and it gets thrown out. It doesn't come in at exactly the right speed to be captured. Could, but it's very, very hard to, to do that. So what we think now, in order to form the moon, is that there was a collision. Now, collisions happened all the time during the early solar system, so something like this wouldn't be unreasonable. And in fact, something the size of Mars or so, over here, these are examples of a computer simulation of it, could smash into the Earth, not quite directly, but slightly off. This would have been in the very early times, you know, hundreds of millions of years after the solar system was beginning to form, and smashed a lot of that material, so tore out a lot of material from the crust of the Earth, from the crust of this planetesimal itself, leaving a lot of that bluer material, denser material, to solidify with the Earth, that denser material would be the iron. The Earth has a very big iron core, in fact, bigger than it should have based on where it is. Our iron core is about the size of Mercury's, but Mercury's a lot closer to the sun. It should have more. We should, be, we should have less iron than we do. It also explains that most of the red and yellow materials, a lot of what's out here and then condenses to form the moon later, is less, has less metals. So less metallic material. The moon actually has very much rock and has very little of a metal core, if at all. So one thing this explains is that the compositions, the different compositions of the Earth and the moon. That intense impact would have also vaporized a lot of things. Um, anything that was easy to vaporize, things like waters and stuff, would have been vaporized from those materials that collided and then formed the moon. So the moon would have very little in terms of water. We do know of some ice on it, but that could be caused by comet impacts later on, may not have been there from the origin, from when the moon actually formed. So this is just the model that is used now to kind of explain how we think the Earth-Moon system formed. It's an unusual in that it requires an impact, and it has to have a reasonable impact at a certain direction, but it's not something so odd that it happened to capture it just into the right orbit. You know? We do that all the time. We can send a spacecraft to go into orbit around a planet. If you just send a spacecraft out there traveling randomly, the odds of it going into, ever going into orbit around anything are minuscule. It's, never going, it's almost never going to do that. So when we can direct it, we can send it into that exact right orbit, but that wouldn't explain how the moon got here. So this is an example of that computer model just showing that you had this large object colliding. A lot of that material just vaporized out into the solar system. But a little bit of it, here's the Earth condensing. 
a denser core than normal and a little moon starting to condense there in this, in this model. So it fits what we see. Does that mean it's what really happened? Not necessarily, but it does fit what we see. The Earth might have had a nice ring of material around it at the time that eventually then condensed into forming the moon. Yeah? How are we doing? All right, let me see. Where are we, I think? Yep, let me do one more and then we'll start terrestrial planets on Monday because this will finish up the history. So really, this is just looking at the history of the moon. Here's the moon, what it looked like 4 billion years ago, what it probably looked like about 3 billion years ago, and closer to what it looks like today. So 4 billion years ago, near side of the moon and the far side were completely covered in craters. One of the larger objects that formed, it solidified, and all those other objects that were there kept adding to it, right? kept building it up, and they'd impact into it and form craters. It was completely covered in craters. Some big large ones, little or small ones, all over there. At some point, after about that first billion years, the interior of the moon heats up. It'll heat up later because of radioactive elements in the core. It'll condense, it'll collect radioactive elements, and they will slowly decay. That decay releases a little, each one of those decays releases a little bit of energy, but it's trapped in there. You got this big blanket of material over it. So if it's out in space, that energy just travels off into space and goes away. But when you've got it trapped in there, that heat gets trapped in there. And when you get not just one decay, right, it's not just one element, one atom of one element, it's billions of atoms of this kind and billions of atoms of this kind, it generates a lot of heat and can actually serve to melt the interior of the moon. So you would have built up enough heat that it melted, and then little cracks in the crust, weak spots in the crust, allowed that material to flow out and then fill in the lowest lying areas on the near side of the moon. So that's what we see as the Maria today. Now, what's happened since then? As I said, impacts were pretty much done here. There weren't a lot of impacts, but there's still been a few. You know, every few years, every decade, get a good impact. Over 4 billion years, 3 billion years, that's a lot of decades in 3 billion years. So even if you're getting only one here, one there, you're talking about millions upon millions of impacts occurring on the, on the surface of the moon. It's slowly clearing out the Maria. Five, 5 billion years from now, there'll be even less. The moon is still getting hit even today. Eventually the Maria would be completely cratered again. But it's a very slow process and it's sort of a declining one in that there's fewer and fewer impacts each year. So I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick up on Monday, I'm going to pick up and talk about the terrestrial planets. So we'll go through, we talked about one of them already a little bit, I mean the little bit I wanted to go through on the Earth and the Moon. We'll talk about Mercury, Venus, and Mars and look at them and see their similarities in comparison to the Earth. So I'll stop there, we'll pick up on chapter 6 on Monday. And then we'll do lab, take a break, and we'll do lab in a few, get lab started in a few minutes here.